Welcome to Black Diplomats, a podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. This week, we will be devoting our hour to a mix of domestic and international news items involving defense spending, Palestine, America's relationship with Russia, the Iran deal, and the very serious and messy allegations against Florida Congressman Matt Gates. Here to talk to me about all of this is Pam Keith, 2020 Democratic nominee out of Florida's 18th Congressional District. She's also a former Navy Judge Advocate General, a litigator, and an expert on workplace law. She is also the host of the news show, but what it really means is... So this is Pam's second time coming back to the show, and all of our listeners loved our first conversation. So, of course, you can come back again. So, Pam, first of all, tell me, how are you doing? I just want to do a mental health check before we get into all this news for, for, for the day. You know, I, my mental health is, is on steadily on the improving. I think it's just the sense that there's some hope on this COVID thing, you know, I've seen the numbers just skyrocket in terms of people getting vaccinated. I've been vaccinated myself and that has lifted a low level dread that was hanging around me. So I think that's good. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm thrilled with some of the things that I'm seeing out of the administration, less thrilled with some of the things I'm seeing out of Congress, have nothing to say about what I'm seeing out of the DOJ because the DOJ is not saying anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm starting to, I, I'm, I'm getting a little bit of that Mueller report anxiety where you, you know, you hear nothing for months and months and you build yourself up to believe that something great is coming. And then it's just like, oh, no, that's so not the thing. <laughs> let's talk about homeboy Matt Gates. Jeez. Oh, let's do G Jesus Christ. Okay. So this is your fellow uh, Floridian. Right. Yes. So, okay. So, so here's the thing, y'all. <laughs> Yo. So, so, so. Okay. So, I just, boy. So on th uh, this, this just update people on what's happening. So, the Department of Justice is investigating uh, Congressman Matt Gates on allegations that he. Uh, trafficked, trafficked uh, uh, women uh, for sex. And underage girls. And girls. Not just women. Girls. Girl, yeah, girls. And, and I say women. Women and girls. That's correct. Because they got the one of some of them are like at 18. They all went, and then there's one person in particular who's under 18. Right? So yes, there is an allegation of a teenage girl. Yes, that's correct. This investigation began in the tail end of the um, the department uh, during the uh, Trump administration, right? And so he also allegedly, well, he, it was confirmed by the White House that he did pursue a a uh, a pardon a from Trump, a preemptive pardon, preemptive blanket pardon, a preemptive blanket pardon from Trump. And so the aides in the White House shut it down, you know, because they said that it was set a bad precedent. Trump went on to say that, hey, he didn't ask me. Of course, no one said that he asked you. Matt Gates asked senior A's in the White House. So there are so there are a number of things that's happening here. There are they're happening here. So just yesterday alone, at least five different stories about this man came out, right? That's connected to this case. 
What's also important to note that his pal, um, Joel Greenberg, who is a former tax collector in Seminole County, um, he is charged with numerous counts of sex trafficking and his lawyers are expecting, uh, they, they say that their client like most likely is going to uh, take a plea deal. And <laughs> yesterday when um, Greenberg's lawyer uh, spoke to journalists outside of the federal courthouse in Orlando. He said, "Well, if I were Gates, I, I, I would be, you know, would I, I would, um, would be very, be feeling very, you know, uncomfortable, you know, basically, right?" And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it felt like he was just playing it up and everything. But that's, but that was just one thing that happened. When another thing that happened is that the Daily Beast came out with a story saying that they obtained receipts. Of you know Venmo transactions. Who the fuck? If who the fuck does this? I'm I'm sorry. Venmo fucking Venmo, bush league ass shit. That you're gonna pay you know sex workers, women and girl. You know allegedly women and girls in order to do your deeds on Venmo, right? And so the fields said you know so basically he sent this money. Uh, Gates sent this money allegedly to Greenberg, and so. And the fee, and so, um, and so Greenberg sent the money to, yeah, 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 to the three women. That's it. With the subject lines, tuition, school, and school. Okay. Um. Then next. Okay. So that's one story. Then the other story, uh, was the one I just told you about, where the lawyer said, "I'm sure Matt Gates is not feeling very comfortable today, right?" Um. So that was one story. And then the other story. The other story is that the New York Times found out that Gates and a Florida lobbyist allegedly discussed influencing right. the 2020 uh, state Senate race, basically that. by putting up a, yeah, basically by putting up a third party candidate on the ballot in order to help um, Gates associate Jason um, Brodeur to win the race. And he ended up winning anyway, because he raised $3 million, right? So um, another story, again, I know this is a lot. I'm just bringing up though. So this is a lot. Um, a conservative consultancy firm connected to Gates allegedly threatened journalists at Politico over their coverage of the congressman. Right. Here's another one. Now, if you're trying to help your man, which I don't know what type of help you can give him other than saying, hey, bro, you need to plead <laughs> deal so you can minimize whatever you're dealing with, like threatening journalists. You say, hey, we're going to sue you if you continue to do this. Like, that's not helping. I cover politics. If I were to get an email from somebody saying, we're going to sue you, I would just go, one, I'm a part of a union. You know, so one, you're going to have to deal with our corporate lawyer who's probably going to take the email and say, delete it and fuck them. That's what they're probably going to say nine times out of 10 if they're a good lawyer, right? Um, then number two, I have a whole, you know, my then my... Union lawyers are going to probably say the same thing. Fuck them. And I wish they would. And I'll sue them. That's what a good lawyer would probably say. So all of this happened in one day. It's Friday. Of all the things that he could do. I mean, to, I, I tweeted about it. I said, look, Matt Gates has done the two things that are about as bad as a human being can do. He betrayed his country and he had sex with a child. This man ain't having a good day. No, and, but the thing is, it's. You know, like I said, I like I said at the top of the show, you know, watching Matt Gates twist in the wind is my love language. It is <laughs> that is delighting me more than anything right now. 
it's kind of balancing my rage at Joe Manchin. But, um, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it just, it, first of all, you need to know that Matt Gates is the son of Dan Gates. And Dan Gates was the Florida Speaker of the House. He's very, very rich, very powerful white man in North Florida. Uh, so Matt has had an easy path all the way through. His dad essentially bought him his congressional seat, um, got him out of, you know, people are like, well, his dad had nothing to do with it. Well, he got arrested for DUI and somehow didn't get prosecuted. Now, you tell me about that now. And I know what we know publicly is of one, but if you live in Florida, you hear rumors of many other situations of scraps and things that Daddy Gates has gotten mad out of. He is a consummate frat boy, right? He is locker room talk personified into lock, locker room action. Um, and, and, he's, and he's a clown, right? So he was the one wearing the gas mask on the floor of the house to try to protest, you know, like the whole stupid thing. And he's one of the signatories to that BS uh, piece of litigation, you know, from Texas trying to kick out all those votes. I filed a bar complaint against him for that. And I filed a bar complaint against him really? for January 6th. I got 27,000 signatures on the bar complaint uh, on the January 6th thing. Um, so he's deep and he's, you know, Trump's most loyal acolyte right up there with Jim, Jim Jordan and all the, you know, Louis Gilmer and them. So, you know, Matt has been flying close to the sun for a while. Remember, he also got caught up in the uh, threatening Michael Cohen. Remember when Michael Cohen was testifying and, and Gates threatened him. Um, and, and that was witness intimidation and the bar, Florida bar said, oh, you know, whatever, because that's what the Florida bar always says when it comes to wealthy, privileged white men. Oh, whatever, you know, blah. they have no standards when it comes to rich white men. So now, you know, he's caught up and he, because he has been given so much coverage by his dad and by the media and the political machinery of Florida that defers to that power source. But he's a, but he's a child inside. He's a child inside because he's never had to be, he's never been a man. He's never had to be a man. He's always had somebody come in to his rescue. You didn't have that. Neither did I, right? Like you didn't have daddy running to the rescue every time you got yourself into something stupid. You, you know, you, Matt, Matt, Matt got into the University of Florida on his daddy's mojo, right? Like you didn't have that. I didn't have that, right? He did. He has always had daddy's ability to come to the rescue, always. So he's never grown the hell up. He's never grown up. He's 38 years old. He still acts like a teenager. He, he's arrested development personified. He's gotten away with a lot. I mean, his whole Nestor situation with the person that he called his quote unquote son, the little brother of his quote unquote ex-girlfriend, whom he claimed he had, who he told Cedric Richmond and argued to Cedric Richmond that he had adopted a little Hispanic boy. It turns out that it was the brother of his girlfriend and both his, both this young man's parents are still alive and live in Florida. So you call, you tell me if that's actual adoption and the man is, you know, he's a young man now. He's, 20 something and he lived in Matt Gates's house. So, but no journalist felt like that was something to pick at or dive into. To me, I assumed they were having an affair uh, or that he was, you know, Matt Gates's love child or something. I don't know, but um, that was never pursued. What, what politician do you know in today's day and age could live with a grown, you know, 20 something year old uh, immigrant boy or girl in their house, call them adopted, but then call them as intern, but then call them as helper? Like, who, who do you know could get away with that? Like, Matt got away with flying too close to the sun way too many times. And it's because of that 
that he had this kind of swashbuckling attitude that he could do anything, right? And that's how he would do Venmo to pay for hookers, right? Or, you know, <laughs> but you know what's interesting? The story is not even Matt. Matt's not the story. There's two other stories that I find more interesting. Number one, the number of people in the house that he was showing naked pictures to who did not say anything. Ooh, I got an issue with that. The other thing is, who are Matt Gates's friends? From whom were these ladies procured? This guy has been absolutely untouchable and he has been doing all kind of shady things. Now that buying a third party candidate, sponsoring a third party candidate to siphon off democratic votes, that actually happened. I don't know if that's the particular incident in which it happened, but the FBI raided the helm of Frank Artiles in Miami just this two weeks ago for pulling that scheme off in Jose Javier Rodriguez's race in Miami. And 37, he lost, Jose Javier lost by 37 votes and they put an independent, they put a person on the ballot as an, a non-party whose last name was Rodriguez. It was a shot shadow candidate, Alex Rodriguez and Jose Javier, because that they pry on the fact that Spanish speakers may not know which Rodriguez they're thinking about. Right. And that, that's all it takes. It takes if, uh, um, that's all it takes. If you confuse two, three hundred people, you win the race. And so that's exact. And this is GOP game. This is by no means the first time Florida Republicans did this. Right. But it's the first time they got caught. But they've done this before. This is always their game. And Democrats never seem to be able to know game is being played because it's not like we don't know. They're on the ballot by June 22nd, the elections in November. It's not like you don't know, you know. And somehow you don't have the resources or reach or whatever to, to stave that off. Well, we also didn't have DOJ to help us out. This time, maybe we do. But the reality is, this has been game in Florida for a long time. Matt Gates has been the Jared Kushner of Florida. He's been the guy that's, or the Don Jr., whatever. He's been the guy whose daddy's political reach has, has insulated him from accountability. And that's finally coming to an end. And so, like, I, I went down a rabbit hole with Matt Gates yesterday and I put it on my Twitter and I it, somehow I just thought about that exchange between Cedric Richardson Richmond, yeah. and Gates. Rich, I'm sorry, Richmond. Yeah, Richmond and Gates, right? So in Richmond, uh, former congressman from Louisiana, he gave up that seat in order to be a senior advisor for the Biden administration right now. And so Ced, what was really interesting was that if you look at the whole exchange, like Cedric was talking about, it was it was his frustration about the lack of seriousness that the Republicans had about their urgency about, you know, like yeah, Black Lives Matter and police reform and all these other things. And so <clears throat> if you look at like his whole mannerisms, just looking at the shift, he was talking generally, all right? And then Matt Gates, he came in, the way that he came in, none of what he was saying was really germane to the central points. He says shit like some white person says like, oh, I got a, you know, like I got a black wife or I got a black whatever or a black, my best friend is black bullshit. When he said he started talking about my son, I you know, I don't recall if he said that my son was black you or know, whatever said, the case may be. My son is a, a minority or something like that. Yeah, and was yeah. Like, but, but what, what son? I mean, he'd been in Florida politics for seven years and never mentioned that he had a son. Until that exchange. Yeah, that was my first time. Who lives right? in his house is now his son, quote unquote, adopted son. Now, Matt Gates is a lawyer. He knows what the word adopted means. 
He did not, there the are no thing, records of adoption in the Florida system for this young man. He did not adopt. So he means adopt like we like black people use auntie uncle. Right. <laughs> and I and listen and listen, Pam. He probably tried to act like he wanted to be black. Like, oh, you know what though? My adopted child, like we do, and said said shut that down. But it was the petulance with which he spoke that really he rocked is, me. And Biff. I'm just Matt Gates is Biff. He is a total douchebag. Like he is everything that you think about a high school bully. He never grew out of that. And and but the one the one that was really funny to me when I went down my rabbit hole was when he had this exchange with Sharpton. And for a lot of people, I I like I like Reverend Sharpton. Right, I think that he has an incredible mind about the intersection of politics and activism. I think that he is one of the greatest um, active like you know movement people. Like ever, like I have a great deal of respect for Sharpton. And and I think that Sharpton over the years has matured in ways just to see his projector, uh, you know, trajectory from the early 1990s when he had the when he had the perm and he had the jumpsuits and to right now. Right. Definitely 360. But just to see him at just because what because Matt Gates he was just, you know, um, just to be clear. So. Uh, doggone year. Um, uh, Sharpton went before the, uh, went, you know, before a hearing to talk about, you know, police reform. And one of the, one of the people to uh, ask questions was Matt Gates, And so he went down a litany of things that, uh, that Sharpton supposedly said, which much of it wasn't true. That was the first thing. And then secondly, he just went, once Sharpton refused to play his game, he got, he just got really irate very quickly. He just went from, he, he, he went from three to a hundred mad quick. And so Sharpton just looked at him and said, you know, you really shouldn't get, you know, you, you really should do a better job of controlling your temper. It was like an old uncle talking to a little boy and he just sat there and just listened to him. It's like, I'm, you know, you're going to let me finish or what? And just gate, you know, and, and he just went off. And so if you look at his hearings, he's like a child. And it goes back to this larger question. You ran for office. People like you, I mean, it's obviously a different district, but you got people like you and then you got Matt Gates. Right. Well, let me tell you how that happens. You know, in Florida, there are two different schools of thought on how to run elections. There's the Democratic school and the Republican school. The Republican school says, we don't care who you are as long as you're loyal. And if you're loyal, we will sponsor you and we will make sure you win because it's our job to get that seat. And we don't care who's in it so long as they're loyal. The democratic school is we are gonna have candidates and some of them are gonna be people we like and some of them are gonna be people we are not that nuts about. And um, they're gonna raise money and we hope that they, they're good at that. And we hope that they're, they're good at putting a team together and, and getting a campaign going. And, and if they're in an important seat that we think we could win, we'll, we'll help them out. And if they're not, we won't. And, you know, it's a shame that they lose. You know, they should have been a stronger candidate. They should have run a stronger campaign. See, the thing is, Republicans think that retaining the seat and controlling the seat is about their party controlling power. Democrats think it's about joining their club. And they're perfectly okay with people not getting represented and seats being lost as long as they're not entering people into their club they don't like, right? And that's why we lose. We lose because we accept losing. Matt Gates did not win his seat. 
The Florida GOP won it for him. You look at the com contrast between Andrew Gillum and Ron DeSantis. Andrew Gillum had to, when Gillum won the nomination, he had to build an entire structure of his own across the state in three weeks. He had to hire hundreds of people. He had to put materials in the field, get offices set up, get operations. Ron DeSantis just stepped into the GOP machine because the machine, it's the Florida Republican Party that communicates with Florida Republican voters, not campaigns. The opposite is true on the Democratic side. The Florida Democratic Party does not talk to voters. It's only candidate campaigns that do that. The Florida Democratic Party talks to Florida Democratic Party members, right? And clubs and caucuses. It does not do field work. Field work is done by campaigns, but campaigns happen every two years and they're only as good as the candidates fundraising and strength of candidacy, right? We want our candidates to have a tough competition and show that they've got the medal. And every month you have to prove to the powers that be that you're worthy of their help and investment. You gotta hit these metrics, you gotta hit these numbers. It is an incredibly pressure-filled thing. It is a hunger games of, of fundraising, right? And, and you're hitting up, literally you're spending nine, 10 hours a day on, on call time hitting up donors to give you money because if you don't hit your numbers, the party's gonna think you're a weak candidate. Oh, well, I guess you're not gonna win, right? The reason that Democrats lose in Florida is because Democrats are perfectly comfortable with losing in Florida. We don't take, we don't take winning as, we don't have a business approach, mission approach to winning. If we did, we would say, I don't care whether that candidate has a good campaign or not. We're gonna make sure they win because we want this, right? We will build the infrastructure to make that candidate get out their name or whatever. Right. So in Florida, Democratic candidates have to be superb. They have to be unassailable with no skeletons, no issues and no mistakes, no weaknesses. And Republicans just need to show up. Well, you're superb and you don't pay for underage girls with Venmo. Absolutely account, right? not. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> right. And but but the, but the party didn't want to invest in me. So they decided they weren't investing in the seat it was okay to lose this one because they were so convinced they were going to win other ones. We don't need that one. You, right. You know, I talked to, you know, um, you know, of uh, Tashira Jones, she yeah. won her mayoral race in St. Louis. Absolutely. I met her. She speaks, she speaks very openly. And we may have been in this. Where, where, where did y'all meet? Um, we met actually, she and I were on a, a photo shoot for the collective pack for Washington post. They did a story about uh, up and coming black politicians. And she and I were in the photo shoot together. So that's how I met her. Got it, got it. But you know, Tashira has been very outspoken about the need of of the Democratic Party to to throw more of their support around Black women early on, right? And she's and she echoes some of the same things that you brought up. Now, in her first race, what was interesting was that it was the Black men with their egos who refused to step out early, right? And so, because she she could have won then had they rallied support around her, which is that you know the whole misogyny thing is another. I can write a whole book about that. I can write a whole book about black men who don't like black women kidnap their land. You, Tashira, and, and a number of women who I've interviewed all talk about that. And it deals also with this issue of the Democratic Party and all the points that you brought up because she said the same things. Now, she was able to win. And, of course, people were rallying around saying, hey, the Democratic Party did this, that, and the third. Now, you talked to her. You talked to a whole bunch of other people. Who, run, who win their races, some of them are not as open about their grievances 
in their, you know, in, in their, you know, their frustrations. You're not allowed to grieve. That's the problem is that if you want to have any hope of a political future, you you're not supposed to call out what happened the first time you ran or the second time you ran, because then you're not a party, you're not a team player, right? Like, so that's what I got told. I got told I was not a team player because I was willing to criticize Nancy Pelosi on the Mueller report, right? And said that it was wrong to say it's not worth impeaching Donald Trump. That was my, that I had a sincerely held belief that that was just wrong and that we needed to go check that dude back then because he was only going to get worse. Of course, I was right. But, you know, leaving that aside, they said I was not a team player. They could not control me. They don't know what I'm going to say. Well, I'm not the problem right now that is eviscerating Democratic power. Look to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, please. But they didn't have a problem with them. They were more than happy to give money to Kirsten and Joe Manchin because that's their flavor. That is the not team player, not me, because never in a million years would I contemplate eviscerating Democratic power right ever right so um you know that but but the but the reality is they like a certain kind of candidate and i was not that kind of candidate but even so it doesn't matter at the end of the day the philosophy that they were willing to give up the seat because they didn't like this candidate is the sickness the sickness in our party is that we are too comfortable with losing right because we feel like we can win elsewhere and the Republicans don't have that attitude. They're not interested in winning elsewhere. They're interested in winning everywhere. And so they invest everywhere. And that and what happened in 2020, Terrell, is that because they had such lockdown on the red part of the state, which is all of the central northern part of the state, right? They didn't even have to pour money there, right? They had such lockdown up there. They poured all their money into the battlegrounds, so they won the battlegrounds. And then they started siphoning off our blue districts, and we lost 15 points in Miami-Dade County. It went from 67% blue to 53% blue in one cycle, right? Because the GOP didn't have to spend defending anything because we weren't attacking anything. Also, there are critiques in Texas as well. So particularly in the Rio Grande Valley. Right, I mean, things went really sideways there, really sideways there. But, but my answer to this, Terrell, is that I've started a new organization called Fight for Florida's Future. I'm going to shamelessly plug my thing. Of course, go ahead. And my thing is, Fight for Florida's Future is a, is a standalone organization that will work collaboratively with the party, but not owned by the party. And our job is going to be building the infrastructure to allow candidates to truly camp, compete, grassroots organizations to be truly effective, to build data infrastructure and a permanent, professional, community-facing engagement of the, of the communities that can vote Democratic. Like we need to be present. The reason we we have no credibility in Florida is twofold. One, we only show up at election time. That's not gonna win you credibility. And two, we haven't won in 25 years. That's even if people believe you, they don't believe you can actually pull off what you claim, right? So we need to build relationships to get beyond this transactionality that they're not buying into. We need to find those 911,000 black people who are of age and not registered to vote and ask and get them registered, not because of what we promise to do in the future, but because of what we're doing in the present. That's what's missing. And that's what Fight for Florida's Future is all about. So if you're interested in it, check it out. Fight for Florida's Future. It's fight, the number 4FL.com. Fight4FL.com is the website. Check it out. It is a new paradigm shift away from clubs and caucuses, away from you know, election cycle focus away from hundreds of million dollars in ads and no infrastructure, no data. Like it's 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 a it's a sea change. It's not nibbling around the edges or pouring more money into what we've been doing. It's a sea change. It's a different paradigm. I mean, the paradigm says 
We're gonna make sure that people win. We're gonna provide services to candidates. We're gonna provide permanent community-facing relationships based on targets, targeted populations that we believe are naturally inclined to think our way, right? We're gonna be work on a philanthropic model where we give before we take. We're gonna invest in permanent offices in the community so that people see that this is a permanent long-term relationship and not just a transactional thing to show up around election time, right? And we're gonna, we're gonna do all of this and we're gonna build a data machine that's truly special so that we are actually competing with what the Republicans do in our state. At the moment, the Republicans play to win and the Democrats play not to lose, and that's why we lose. Because they think that, that, that my only role is representation and, and that representation, I'm only there to represent the black people. They don't think that my role is to actually write legislation or think through problems or be a, a problem solver or whatever, right? You know, and that's, that's, that's the interesting thing about politics is as opposed to the law. When I show up in a room as somebody's counsel, nobody's assuming I'm there to represent them because I'm black, right? Especially not in the corporate world. If I show up at a labor negotiation, they understand that I'm there to negotiate on behalf of my client, right? Even if it's a little weird to see a black woman in a room full of white, old white men negotiating, pretty soon they get over the black womanness and just say, well, she's making cases and you know, when I'm not getting what I want and blah, blah, blah. And you're parlaying on the serious tip, you're parlaying because that's what's going on. If I'm in a trial, I'm putting on evidence and making a case and that's what's going on. But in politics, what's going on is that I'm a black woman, it's always what's going on. That's always what's going on. There's no not that going on. And I could talk about umpteen thousand different topics. But at base, she's a black woman, you know, and, and that, that's a part of our politics. It's just like, you know, I'd love to get beyond that. I just feel like one day when I, if, and when I ever get my flowers, I will be in a place where I can bring all the stuff that I know and that I think about and all these solutions and all this sort of lateral thinking that I've developed over the years to the benefit of the people, not just the black people, but the people, right? Right now, I'm a bulldog for black people. That is what is my ministry, right? Because my, black people got the target on our back. Right? And that's why I'm willing to do fight for Florida's future. Because I believe that the black community is extremely at risk at the moment. Right, so listen, Pam, you are one, I, I like having you on because when we think about defense and security and what all these things mean, there you bring a very uh, varied and very diverse mindset and an organizing mindset around this. And so, when we talk about spending, when we military spending, when we talk about how we deal with Putin, <laughs> China, what does security mean? You have a a domestic experience that's uh, that's combined with your global travels. You know, it, it, it all and also too just the work that you're doing in Florida. It's important for people to know about you because we have people like you that's in Florida across this country and we need to invest in you and listen to you and learn from you because that's why I enjoy having you on. I said, God bring Pam on to talk about some of these things because when we talk about Matt Gates, it's not necessarily connect like a, 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 a foreign policy conversation per se, but what's important is that you got people like him who can cast a vote. And so, and, and so we need people like you who are smarter, who are better and don't commit crimes. <laughs> and, I, and that's just such a damn low bar 
But my point is that there are people like you who are immensely qualified and that we need to know about you uh, so that we can make our country and our world a safer place. And so thank you for coming back on for a second time. And this won't be your last. And I hope I could be on your show eventually. Yes, we're retooling the format this week. But yes, we're, we're, we're excited to have you. Um, and there's nothing we can't talk about. I want to talk about everything with you. I want to talk about food. I want to talk about travel. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about relationships. Of course. I want to talk about jobs and how we're going to come out of quarantine. I want to talk about it all because you're just a cool person to talk to. So thank you all for listening, everybody. So we, we did a show. Absolutely. Terrell, my friend, thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Black Diplomats. Pam and I had such a great time during this episode that we spoke a little bit longer than I had anticipated. So we're going to divide this conversation into two parts. Part two is going to drop mid next week, Wednesday. So stay tuned for that. Also, thank you all very much for continuing to support this podcast. And some of the best ways to do so is to go to iTunes and give us that five-star rating. Also go to our Patreon and search Black Diplomats to find us there as well. Thank you all very much. Talk to you next week.